Okay, what's interesting about this is that this does compare to Psalm 3 as kind of a response. It doesn't say anything about fleeing from Absalom or being written after he was victorious over Absalom, which would almost make some sense. But (coughs) there is a comparison to um, Psalm 4 and Psalm 3. For example, you have the, in in verse 1 of chapter 3, and in verse 1 of chapter 4, you have this idea of distress. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, those who trouble me, which do what? Create distress. Um, And then you have in chapter 3, verse 2, many who say to me. And in chapter 4, verse 6, it talks about there are many who say. We're going back to that theme again. Um, Glory is in chapter 3, verse 3. And in chapter... Four, verse 2, um, how long, O oh Lord, will you, you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? And, and then there's the call and the answer. I cried out to the Lord, so there's your call, and he heard me from his holy hill. He heard me is implying this assurance of, of the fact that God is either answering, will answer, or is getting ready to answer we see this also again in verse 1. Hear me, O when I call, O God of my righteousness, you've relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me. And then laying down and going to sleep, both in chapter 3, verse 5, and in chapter 4, verse 8. So, chapter 3 is considered a morning psalm. Morning as in the time of day, not M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. It's a morning psalm. Chapter 4 is considered as an evening psalm. So it would be a good psalm to read before you go to bed. So chapter 3 was, you know, he was in, excuse me, Psalm 3. Um, Many have increased to trouble me, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. And I lay down, verse 5. I slept, I woke, for the Lord sustained me. Uh, and, and four almost gives the impression that this is that next day after he has woke up in Psalm 3. I lay down and slept, or I woke, for the Lord sustained me, verse 5. And, and then he goes to sleep at the end of that day in verse 8 of chapter 4. Follow me on this? So it's kind of almost like they they coincide. They kind of answer each other. They touch on similar themes, some of the same themes. Now, in considering that chapter 3, excuse me, I keep calling it chapter. I mean Psalm 3. Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are also considered as prayers. Um, prayer is often, and if you, if you study the Psalms, like we're doing, most of the Psalms, if not all of the Psalms, 
that David wrote, particularly the ones where you have the superscript, which I'm going to get into the, the superscript in a minute, it usually defines or describes a time of difficulty for David. A time of difficulty. And then he is writing psalms, prayers, in response to his difficult season. That was pretty obvious last, well, we did two weeks in Psalm 3, right? When he fled from Absalom. It was pretty obvious that, that he's, he's, he wrote the psalm in response to his fleeing of the city of Jerusalem. And here, get ahead of myself a little bit, but here is, it, it could be after he has just returned. Now, this is speculation. So you got to be careful with speculation because that means your speculation might be as good as mine. Um, and it may not be. How's that? Or it could be even better. But um, here it's possible that he wrote this when he had first returned to Jerusalem. He was re-anointed by the people. He'd already been anointed by God, right? He was re-anointed by the people as king, but things were not really quite solid again because he was anointed by some of the people who had actually rebelled against him and had sided with Absalom. And then, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. Absalom's dead. Okay, we better put David back on the throne. We need some st stability here. So he... I think he understood um, in these first couple of verses, particularly in verse 2, when he talks about the Son of Man. I think he understood that their hearts were with him, but not really quite with him, if that makes sense. Um, so he's calling out to God. But before that, this is written. Now, the NIV in the superscript said the... Uh, did he say choir? Didn't say choir director. It said something out. Musical director. Okay, the director of music, otherwise known in New King James. I don't can't remember if the ESV has even the superscripts put in or not. Choir master. Okay, chief musician is what we would. NASB. I don't have that in front of me tonight. Is that chief musician as well? Choir director, okay. So, um, so the choir director with stringed instruments. This is the first mention of this title, office, if you will, in the Psalms. Third Psalm. We have now the choir director, the chief musician, the musical director, um, choral master, all right? Something like that. All right. Um, so there was this, this, bless you, there was this person who was in charge of overseeing the group of people who sang worship. You could, I don't think it's too huge of a stretch to say 
to the worship leader because that would be the equivalent. See, we don't have a choir. Actually, we do have a choir. Um, <laughs> we do have a choir, Reverend Bill. Um, it's all of you. Exactly. You guys are, now you just don't wear robes. You don't stand up. But anyway, uh, we are the choir. And I happen to be, unfortunately, happen to be the chief musician. But anyway. Um, and so there was this person who was set aside. They had the responsibility for leading the people in singing worship songs to the Lord. And with the string instrument. With the harp, right? And uh, Carol plays the harp. But uh, with the harp and with the lyre, a lyre is a... Uh, I want to say it's a guitar. Uh, it can be handheld, or it can be almost like a like a guitar type of instrument. But some of those only had four strings instead of six. Um, but I, I like the idea of saying it's a guitar, even though if I'm not completely historically correct. But um, you know, you got to get in there somewhere. All right. So you have this being a song that they would sing, and. It, it, he starts off the bat, um, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Hear me when I call. So it, it's, it's I, I think the NIV had it said a little differently. Answer me when I call to you. Which actually might be a little bit more consistent than hear me. In, from the Hebrew. Um, ESV has, answer me, answer me, hear me. Okay, I heard you. But anyway, okay. Um, but it, it's attempting to get, now, does it sound a little desperate? Answer me. <laughs> no, there you go. Or did you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> It could. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I could. Would answer, hear, answer me or hear me? Right. Sure. Well, your audience is different for starters, right? You're talking to God. Right? But would that imply maybe a sense of uh, desperation, distress? A little bit of despair? Um, you know, this isn't one of those, hey, God, what's happening, casual type of prayers. It's, it's kind of a, it's really kind of a get down to business kind of prayer. Rather than, you know, rather than, How do I say this? Okay, I cleaned it up. It's a prayer of the heart. It's not a, it's not a prayer for necessarily, although it was given to the choir master, music director, chief musician, but it's 
it's a prayer of the heart rather than something that's been cleaned up for public consumption. How's that? Maybe not quite the best Sunday prayer. But sometimes maybe we put too much emphasis on the appearances. I think, I think there's a sense of distress and there's a sense of, of, uh, of desperation. Hear me when I call. Oh God, my righteousness, that of really, it, it, it's a preposition that's not really there. Okay, again, remember the Hebrew is very hard to work, at least for me, it's very hard for me to work with because I have done very little as far as working with the Hebrew. Um, Septuagint, English translation from the Greek, okay? When I called, the God of my righteousness heard me. In tribulation, you made room for me. Have mercy upon me and hearken to my prayer. That's verse 1 in the Septuagint. So whenever I read the Septuagint to you, if you don't like it, you have Ken Perkey to blame. Um, because Ken suggested a long time ago that I get a Septuagint and read it, that it would be good. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. That was a great suggestion, Ken, by the way, of reading the Septuagint. So, um, so he refers to God as God, <coughs> excuse me, God of my righteousness, or it could be God, my righteousness. Okay. Is he stating the obvious? Is he stating the obvious? I think so. Is there anything wrong with stating the obvious? No, I think sometimes it's good for, to remind ourselves of these things that we already know. So when we come and we stand before God, we stand before God, my righteousness. Um, or if you prefer, God of my righteousness. Because not only is God righteous, right? We know this, right? We're going to get into righteousness in a minute uh, because we, we see it quite a bit here in the Psalms. But God is also the source of our righteousness. So he is righteous and he's willing to share. He's willing to share. So all those things that you did before you became a Christian, all those things that you did after you became a Christian, all those things that you will do. No? Okay, anybody? You looked hungry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, because of the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, which is a phrase that Paul loves to use in his letters, we have the righteousness of Christ. Do we deserve it? What? Only through Christ. For some reason, he seems to be able to want to give it to us if we submit ourselves to him. Those who call, Romans 10, those who call upon the name of the Lord, what? Come on, you know this, shall be saved. 
For with the heart man believes, and with the mouth confession is made unto what? Righteousness. So, if you prayed, if you confessed Jesus as Lord, if you prayed to receive Christ, confess him as Lord, you are righteous. Sometimes you don't feel like it. And God knows sometimes we don't act like it, do we? But nonetheless, we are righteous in him, which is, again, chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, in him, in him, in Christ, of the fact that our identity, I like what you said, Larry, because we are righteous in him, right? Because of what Christ has done. And our identity now is found in him. Which is, I, I wonder, somebody say something? I wonder, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> you went to a Pentecostal church in Red Bluff, didn't you? No, I'm kidding. Because um, I wonder if we give enough thought to that, to our identity in Christ. What does it really mean? It, change of status, right? Yeah, when we were in the book of Romans, right? Yeah. We become in God, you know, in Christ we are what? Paul says it to the Corinthians, in Christ we are what? A new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. Behold, old things become anew. And so he is, maybe we won't get done with this tonight. Anyway, he is, he is the God of our righteousness. Um. I'm going to come back to righteousness in a minute because I'm not done yet, but I want to move on a little bit. It says, you have relieved me in my distress. You have relieved me in my distress. That word distressed in the Hebrew could be defined as being pressed into a corner. Being pressed being pressed into a corner. Not only just being pressed up against the wall, but you're in the corner, which means you have two walls. That you are, it, that's a lot of pressure. For some reason, my mind, when I read that definition, my mind went to some of those, my pair of Lucases that I have with the really pointed boots. They're what, they're called roach killers. You know, where you, can, you get them in the corner and you can really step on them. Um, my mind does different things. Okay, but anyway, but, you're in a place where you can't get out. You have relieved me in my distress. Probably the worst distress he was ever in would have been when he was fleeing from Absalom. It definitely wasn't when he was facing Goliath. It looks to me like he wrote this when he had returned to Jerusalem. I can't disprove it or prove it. But it seems, now, remember the Psalms in their form that we have them in today. I, could, I guess we could say final form. Uh, of course, when we get into heaven, that might change. 
The Psalms, as we have them today, were compiled after the Jews returned from Babylon. So putting, there, and I hope this isn't rocking someone's boat. I don't, I can't really say that they're, see this is where I, I struggle, but let me explain. I, I can't really say that the order themselves, the order of the Psalms themselves are necessarily divinely inspired at the time that they were written because they were compiled later. They definitely are inspired. And they definitely seem to make a lot of sense, particularly when you pair three and four. Um, and could the inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon those who compiled it, could, could, could that have taken place? Well, absolutely. Um, but I would say a little secondary to the written word itself, if that makes sense. That makes secondary to the written word. Nonetheless, some good, observant scribes compiled this. And I think they were probably guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, there are other psalms that were left out of this that don't get going down that rabbit trail that it's not tonight, but maybe later. Right, Brian? Because um, I want to deal with the psalm in front of us. Um, you have relieved me in my distress and when I was pressed into the corner, you brought me out. It's, it, it, there, there's your rescuing. There's your, um, really, you could even say redeeming. I don't think that's a stretch at all. I'm reading into it, yes. But I, but I think in the work of God, in knowing the other scriptures, I think that's what he's talking about. And, you have, and the reason why I say that is the next line. Have mercy on me, yet again, and hear my prayer. Essentially, okay, first verse, finally done, kind of, not, not really. He's reminding God, hear me, God, answer me, God. You've done it in the past, so have mercy on me, and hear my prayer. An Eastern Orthodox prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think that's an important prayer for us to keep in our minds and on our lips. Now, again, I, I think I mentioned this not too long ago because... When you're saved, you're saved. Okay, that's what I believe. I, there, are, there are church groups that believe that it's this kind of progressive thing, which really lends itself toward works rather than fully being saved by grace through faith that is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2. But I think part of the Life of a Christian is the calling out for the mercy of God. We see, was David a Christian when he wrote this? I think so. I think he was a Christian in, in every stretch of the 
definition that he understood at that time. He does. He alludes to the Messiah, and also he is a type of the Messiah. Um, and yet, as someone who is in a covenant relationship with God, and I think that's a good way to, de- to, 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 to describe it, um, especially if you know much about covenant theology, right? Um, he's in a covenant relationship with God, and yet he's still asking for God to have mercy on him. Now, you have different definitions of what mercy is. So justice is getting what you deserve. And then mercy, according to some, is not getting what you deserve. And then grace would be getting what you don't deserve. Justice, mercy, grace. Now, that's kind of an interesting framework to think in. But this word mercy, like, his mercy endures forever, right? There's, there's one, of the, one of the Psalms that it keeps repeating the line, his mercy endures forever. That word mercy, in some translations, is translated loving kindness. It is the Hebrew word hesed, H-E, don't write it down because that's not the word here. Is the Hebrew word H-E-S-E-D, hesed, which means that unfailing, unrelenting, can't hide from it, can't drive it away, can't push it away, can't run from it, love that God has for us. This is not that word. All right. This word would be, this word would be better translated to show favor and to be gracious. And in the Hebrew construction of this, of which there are about 41 times in the Bible, mercy is an action word. It is a verb, right? The subject of the verb primarily is God himself. He is the one performing or showing or demonstrating mercy. Favor, graciousness. Um, and this plea, be, be gracious to me, be merciful to me, appears 19 times in the Psalms. Um, and so it is, is asking for the favor of God upon his life. He'll explain why in verse 2. Because we haven't even gotten there yet. I kind of touched on it real briefly, but he'll explain why in verse 2. So part of the, the prayer is to ask for the favor of God. David asked for the favor of God in his loneliness, Psalm 25. In his distress, Psalm 31. Here in Psalm 4, in his transgressions, he asked for the mercy of God. Have mercy on me, O God, right? according to what your loving kindness has said. Right? Right? He's asking for God's favor. And in, particularly in Psalm 51, he's asking for God's favor that God will erase the indictment of the sin against him. Which fascinates me. David understood so much more 
and, and, you know, obviously it was the Holy Spirit revealing it to him. But, but he, he understood so much more, I think, than, than the average typical Old Testament saint. Um, and it comes out in these psalms. <coughs> and then he asks the question, how long? In other words, something has not yet been completed. Kind of like when we get to around 7.30, some of you start, might start be asking, well, how, much, how long is it going to be before he's finally done, right? Tim, be quiet, right? <laughs> no, right. <laughs> No, I was thinking they would say that because Tim always gives me an extension. Um, not tonight. Okay, I got that, yeah. Batman. I think it was Wednesday and Thursday. Anyway. Yeah, I had to go to church on Wednesday night. You were in Southern California during the 60s and 70s, right? 60s? Okay. Do you remember Batman on television? Batman. I know it was probably wasn't your thing, but, you know, you're, you had kids. But Batman was on Wednesday and Thursday nights, weren't they? They were two nights a week. Because I was mad because I had to go to church every Wednesday night. Anyway, we'll talk later. But um, it was a part of the pregame show. Um, how long? In other words... He is still dealing with the aftermath of the rebellion. That's my take. Your mileage may vary, okay? It, it could mean something completely different. But what's interesting about this is that, <coughs> and I was going to throw this in, but I didn't want to derail myself, but the, the commonality of David's experiences that he is praying about. It's not only a commonality in his own life, but it's also a commonality in our lives. We may not have the exact same situations happen, but, but I, 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 you know, as I was thinking about this, and I put in parentheses, boy, I've seen this movie before, right? You know what I mean? History has a way of repeating itself. And, and even though none of us are the king of Israel, and we thank the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, that we're not, but nonetheless, we still ha have a commonality of the problems that we deal with. Because again, almost all of David's psalms are written in response to difficult times in his life. And, and so, um, in a sense, we can find our story in his. That's what I love about the Old Testament stories. Um, I started reading 1 Samuel this afternoon and almost forgot to finish studying for tonight because uh, you just got, got wrapped up in the story, the story of David, you know. Um, and the thing is, is that in these prayers, follow me on this. See, I've got a friend of mine who, who to me, I think his theology is, Let's just say different than mine. Okay. He, ex he prays and he expects God. It's almost like when you play country western music backwards. You know, the train comes back in the station. It stops raining. The dog comes back. Your wife comes back. 
and what? And the horse comes back, that kind of thing, right? In other words, everything becomes good again. Whereas what you see here, I think, in the Psalms is David, when he's entering, he's praying, he's entering into the conflict at a greater degree. Follow what I'm saying? In other words, prayer is as much entering in to the to the a greater degree of the conflict, and the conflict is no longer just out there. Now the conflict is deep within. And that's why I think prayer is so hard sometimes. And that's why often I think that explains to me, anyway, why often it is, is that public prayer just kind of seems superficial. Because we don't really want to go into the inward conflict in front of God and everybody. We'll do it in front of God, but maybe not everybody, right? Um, but when we come to God, and I think... We miss out on something when we come to God. Now, do we pray for our needs? Yes. Do we pray for deliverance? Yes. Do we pray for God to straighten bad situations out? Yes. Do we pray for God to right the injustices of the world? Yes. But if that's all we ever do, follow my thinking on this? If that's all we ever do, then we're not really entering into the conflict ourselves. We're keeping it out there as opposed to bring it into our innermost being. Some of you are really chewing on this. Some of you are like, does that make sense? A few of you. Because they're, you know, I don't know about you, but I get tired of praying for people where God doesn't answer the prayer. You mean in verse 2? Verse 2, not chapter 2. Oh, sons of men? Okay. He's, yeah, he's bringing that into him as he brings it up to God. Because I think when we, when we bring these things up to God, they become more internalized to ourselves. Does that make sense? It's, it's not like you say, God, here's a situation going on up here, but don't let it affect me emotionally. Don't let it affect me mentally. Don't let it affect me physically, but here it is. Just deal with it. And everybody said amen, right? But that's not really prayer. That's turning God into an errand boy. Um, and you have to remember the anguish that Jesus suffered on the cross for not only the sins of well, the sins of the world, which includes all the injustices of the world. And I, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, have a situation where they are getting starting to see justice happen. In a, in a, in a, some of you know what I'm talking about. But they're starting to see justice happen. And I warned him, I said, Proverbs tells us when you see God straightening out your enemy, don't be glad because if he sees you that you're glad, he'll stop chasing your enemy. So 
Make sure you tell God that you're not glad about this. Which I've done that, and it's hard for me to do. God, I'm not happy. God, I'm not, I'm not happy. And, but you know when I say that to God long enough, I, it starts to bug me on the inside because I know I was happy. I, I, quick story, there was a guy who was named, his name was Alexander who used to, uh, I've told you about Alexander the coppersmith, right? He did me much harm. May the Lord repay him, right, for what he's done. But he and his wife pretty much split the church. They finally left town. When they did, I went out and drove out to his house and used his driveway to make a U-turn just because I could because he had left. He was gone, you know. And I was like, finally, God, I feel like I have some redemption. But the whole time, and I knew that he, that he was being chastened through different situations, and it was like, I fought so hard not to crack a smile when he finally lost his house, which is what happened. And I, if anything, I remind myself it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But when I really begin to pray that and think about where I'm at before the Lord and start to internalize it, then the Spirit of God takes that and starts reworking all kinds of stuff in my own heart. And that's part of what I think he's doing in verse 2. This idea, sons of men, is a phrase uh, that refers to leading men of rank of some type. Whether they were officers in Absalom's army, speculation, or whether they were a part of his political administration, again, a speculation, or just leaders within the community. There, there's strife going on. Um, and they are turning David's glory to shame. Okay, how many aspects of David's glory can we think about? Okay, he was anointed as king, right? He was a man after God's own heart. As I brought up what, a couple of weeks ago, he was uh, a man who was willing to entrust even the bad things of his life over to the care of God by sending the ark back to Jerusalem when they had carried it out of Jerusalem and brought it with him. Um, by, by not cutting uh, Hushai's head off when he was cursing him and throwing stones at him. Now, of course, he had it taken care of later, but... Uh, and even when he returned to Jerusalem, he said, nobody will die, nobody in Israel will die this day, right? Uh, and, of course, Hushai came out embarrassed and was afraid that David was going to kill him and all that and apologize, somewhat apologized. But anyway, um, he was, and what it, really, if you think about this, to really into thy hands I commend my spirit. Again, another type of Christ. As Christ prayed that to the Father on the cross, we see David really in his life praying that. You know, he didn't even fight for his kingdom. Absalom was never anointed. But he entrusted these things to God. Um, and what looked like him being... Maybe a coward. 
maybe too old or too feeble to fight. Maybe he thought he was outgunned. Um, maybe he thought that because Absalom had Ahithophel, who was David's counselor, that he was going to be outmaneuvered. And of course, you know the story of Ahithophel. Ahithophel realized that David was going to win. He goes home, sets his orders and affairs, and he hangs himself. Um, but retreat never looks glorious. It doesn't. But was it? Maybe this is overly dramatic, but this was one of David's better hours. Because the entire time he has his trust in God. And then he came back to it. It does not tell us in the scripture, but I believe he came back to it, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It said, now's the time, David. Well, he actually didn't have a whole lot of choice with that anyway because Absalom came after him. Crossed over the Jordan. The big battle was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So, but then, you know, and he, and he they told him not to go. He was going to lead a, they, they split up in thirds. And he was going to lead one of the third uh, group. And they said, no, you need to stay back because if you're dead, everything's lost. And so they made him stay back. And, of course, then he tells them, be kind to uh, my son Absalom for my sake. And you know what happened. But Oh, yeah. That's why I shaved my head. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he had this thick head of hair and all that, right? But, but here was, he was anointed. He had the oil poured over his head. His, was it seven? Seven brothers? Top of my head, I don't remember. But I think he had seven older brothers, and they were all passed up. After the Lord told Samuel, the prophet, go to the house of Jesse, David's father, and anoint the king of Israel. So he's asking, how long will you turn my glory to shame and how long will you love worthlessness? Not by might, nor by power, Zechariah, right? But by my spirit, says the Lord. So here you have this incredible contrast uh, between the, those, uh, those two. Da uh, Absalom, by the, might, the power of the flesh. David, resting in, in, the, in the timing and the power of the whole, thank you, Brian, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't, well, we don't need those on, but that would be the one far right, just push, push down and hold, or push down, push down, not up, that's down, push, just boom. Okay, try it again. No, not up, down. Never mind. Look at that. You did it. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Um, 
How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? See, that's a $6 million question. Now, he's saying this in a prayer. He's actually also speaking it to these men and incorporating it into his prayer to God. And essentially saying, God, this is what I'm, what I'm asking these people. What I'm telling them. Um, obviously, things are not completely reestablished. The waves are still pretty up and down. But I, he had the task of trying to call the nation back to godliness. Now, he had the prophets and he had the priests to help him do that, right? But he had the task to, to call them back to godliness and away from worthlessness and away from falsehood. Because falsehood, there was a lot of falsehood that was spread, which is another way of saying what? They lied. There was a lot of lying going on. It says that a Absalom stole the hearts of the people. It tells us. He stole the hearts by telling them lies. Satan is a, li a liar, and he is what? The father of all liars. So when they're following falsehood, who are they following? Essentially, essentially, sound like today? Depends what you read. I can get into a lot of trouble on some of that, but yeah, I think so. And I, I think both sides of the aisle of the, of the church are preoccupied on something else other than Jesus. And I think the calling upon the church today is second, first Corinthians chapter 2, I determined not to know anything among you other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Which is what Paul said to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians, you know, I, I, listen, I, I was thinking about this today. Be, you know, at times I've listened to people, uh, things are so bad, things are so bad, things are so bad, they've never been this bad. Well, they probably have never been this bad in your lifetime. But if you've studied history, the Corinthians would give us a run for our money. All right? Is it common in our culture for a man to have a wife several women that he just slept with for the sake of sexual pleasure and a young boy for the same? That's not, really that's not really common. I know that we're a sexually immoral culture, but not to that degree. That was Greek culture in the first century. You had a, a, a wife for, for kids, and you had women for pleasure, and you had a, a young boy. 
um, which is, to me, as you think about it, it's just sick. And no wonder Paul touched on immorality so much in his letters. Um, but I determined not to know anything among you other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the Septuagint, it says, Sons of humans, how long are you slow of heart? Why do you love vanity and seek a lie? Because lies are much more appealing to a degree. Sin is pleasurable. I always leave it dangling. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Is indulging in listening to, I'm even listening to them because you are, Romans 1 talks about this idea of give, giving, giving credence to those who do these things even though you don't do them yourself. You approve of those who do these things. Read Romans 1 carefully. Is that in, in itself not sin? Sin is pleasurable for a season. I don't know why that's the case, even for us as Christians, us who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so, again, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon us, a sinner. Amen.